0: Are we ready to hear the word today? Yes. All right. I wondered this question. I thought about this question. What if Jesus wrote you a letter today? What if you got a letter in the mail? I know, that's the old-fashioned, isn't it? Letter in the mail. But what if you got a letter in the mail, and it was addressed to you, and it was from Jesus? What, if, what would it say? <laughs> you ever think about that? What if Jesus wrote a letter to Life of Purpose Christian Church? What would he say to this church? Well, when you read the Bible, when you read the New Testament, in essence, you're reading letters to the churches. You're reading a lot of letters to the churches. They're called epistles. And the apostle Paul, who started a lot of those churches, wrote actually to seven churches. And the number seven is significant because when we get to Revelation and we read the book of Revelation we realize that Jesus addressed seven churches as well. Seven is the number of completeness. And so the letters, the seven churches, it really represents the church as a whole. And today, when we read the letters, when we read the New Testament, we can say that those churches apply, or those letters apply to us as well as the, as the church. And then if the church, and we learned this in step two class, all about God's church yesterday, and you can sign up for that again coming up in November. But as individual Christians, we are the church. The church, by definition, is not a location, it's not a building, it's a gathering of God's people for one purpose. So we come together as the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the family of God, and we want to know how to live for Christ. And so we look at these letters, and they apply to us. you picking up what I'm laying down so far? All right. One of the letters, and I think you're going to need to bring me down a little bit, because I feel like I can't raise my voice without getting feedback, but one of the letters is 2 Corinthians in the New Testament. One of those letters is the letter that we're going to look at for the next few months. Now, I can't just jump into 2 Corinthians, because obviously there is a 1 Corinthians, right? Yeah, so I gotta let you know like what happened. Remind you of what happened in First Corinthians. So today is that. It's sort of a setup. You know, the Corinthian church, what it's all about, and we're going to review First Corinthians. But I want to give you, uh, in that, uh, in today's message, a little history of how it began, a little culture of what the, the city was like back then, and more specifically, most specific, really five problems, and there was more, but five. problems problems that this church had this church had, had problems <laughs> uh, but um, they were a church you know and, and they had issues and we're going to look at those issues and we're going to look at how they overcame them how Paul the the person who started this church helped them overcome overcoming is a huge theme in the new testament especially revelation have you noticed that when you read the bible you realize that as christians we're to overcome Jesus wants us to be victorious. There was a reason why my wife chose that song, I Can See a Victory. We sang that song because the victory is in Christ. And he wants us to be victorious. We need to overcome In fact, the Greek word, the Greek word for overcoming, for being victorious, in the the book of Revelation and, and throughout the New Testament, is the word, it's a Greek word, because when the Bible was written originally, it was written in Greek is the word Nikeo, and you might not be familiar with that word, but you are familiar with Nike, and it's the same word. Nike is the Greek goddess of victory. That's how Nike came up with their name. They they looked at that and they said, well, we want to be associated with victory. You wear our stuff, you wear our shoes, you're going to have victory. You wear our clothes, you're going to have victory. And so that's what Nike means. And the word nikeo is to have victory, to overcome, to conquer. So in seven letters that Jesus addressed um, to churches, seven churches in Revelation, every single time Jesus writes, he ends with an encouragement to conquer, to overcome, to be victorious. And then there's a reward if you do. If you overcome, there's a heavenly reward. So I'm just going to real quickly give it to you. If you want the the in-depth version of this, come Wednesday nights, because we're going through the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights, and you can hear verse by verse what all this means. All the stuff going on in the world, I would think that more people would come on Wednesday nights. So Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, that's the word Nikeo, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To Smyrna, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. To Pergamum, to the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna, a white stone and a new name. To Thyatira, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I'll give authority over the nations. To Sardis, the one who conquers, will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life to the church in philadelphia the one who conquers i will make him a pillar in the in the temple of my god and to the church in laodicea the one who conquers i will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as i also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne isn't that encouraging church that, that, that's what Jesus is saying to the church as a whole. When he writes to those seven churches, it's purposeful. He could have included uh, another church, Colossae, that was right in the same line with all those seven churches that were in Asia Minor. And, but he didn't. It's because seven means the church as a whole. It's meant for us today. That if we overcome, like the, like the churches were called to do, then we will have this heavenly reward. This reminds me of my childhood when I watched the movie Rocky. I don't know what you did after you watched the movie Rocky, but I went out for a shadow box run. (laughs) Ran up those steps for victory, right? Come on. That's what Christ is calling us to do. To be victorious, we must overcome. We must endure the training. We We must overcome the enemy. Churches and Christians everywhere are encouraged to overcome Fight the good fight until the very end. And it's very clear in Revelation what that fight is. Do you know what that fight is? Because if you're a Christian and you don't know what the fight is, you don't even know who your enemy is, you're in trouble. You'll lose. The enemy is false teaching. It's the lies that the devil likes to spew. And he has lots of people, people, real people, in churches even, that are are sharing lies, that are pushing lies, pushing their agenda on us. And we must overcome them. We must overcome, for example, the claim that there's a new and improved Christianity. We must overcome the teaching that you can conform to our culture and yet still be a Christian. You can uh, overcome the claim that You don't really need to join a church because God is everywhere. This is what churches are teaching. And they are not churches held up by the pillar of truth. They're being held up by compromise, by entertainment. And there are churches today that have really put themselves in the same boat as this Corinthian church. they got the same problems. And we're going to dive into those problems to see how we can overcome them. How's that sound? Can I get a big amen? Amen. All right. That means truth, by the way. So be it. That's what amen means. So be it. It's the truth. By the way, when Jesus writes to the churches the seven letters, I think he's very kind in how he criticizes. I don't know how you criticize. I don't know how you Uh, Point out when someone does something wrong, but he uses the sandwich technique. He tells them something they do good, then he gives them the criticism, and then he tells them something they did good or encourages them at the end. I like the sandwich technique. I use it in coaching all the time. Paul, when he writes the letter to the first Corinthians to to the Corinthians in First Corinthians, you see that man—he's kind of harsh. He doesn't really compliment them. I mean, he is just one after another. He did this wrong, and he did this wrong, and he did this wrong. But it worked. He did it with love, and he got the result that he wanted. Because when we read 2 Corinthians, which we're going to do, we're going to go through it, we're going to realize it worked. It, they, they responded. They repented of their issues that they were having. And that's the good news. Because he wanted them, he loved them, he wanted them to be a healthy church just like I want Life of Purpose to be a healthy church. So, uh, a little history, if we will. If you read this, uh, you can read this for yourself, Um, Paul's journeys uh, around the Mediterranean Sea. He had three big mission trips in which he planted churches in these major cities that were trade routes that people would travel. And it's all around the Mediterranean Sea. It's what we know now as Turkey and Greece. And uh, so Paul was uh, in Athens, And he walked across this kind of land bridge into the Peloponnesian Peninsula. And the first city you come to when you walk over into the peninsula is Corinth. Still there today. Corinth is there. You look it up on a map. And when he walked into this city, uh, he realized that it was a a bustling city, if you will. It, uh, It had a lot going on. And his main goal as he went from city to city was to share the gospel. He wanted to tell people the truth about Jesus Christ. His his common way of going about it was to walk into a synagogue to speak to the Jews because they were well acquainted with the coming Messiah. They were waiting for the Messiah and he wanted to let them know, he's here, He, he came, he died, he resurrected. That's Jesus. But when he was there in this culture, he engaged the culture in Corinth, and he met some people that were like him that had the same trade as him, but he was a tent maker. He worked with leather. And uh, he met Priscilla and Aquila. You see them a lot in the New Testament. He met this couple, and they together ministered, shared the gospel for a year and a half. Paul, uh, God pray, uh, Paul prayed, and God opened the door um, for Paul to stay for a year and a half in this city. Paul learned very quickly why people love. Two reasons, sex and philosophy. They had that in abundance. In America, we might say Paul wrote first and second Californians. I mean, everyone knows the iconic songs about California. I wish they all could be California girls. Welcome to Hotel California. What would we do without the Beach Boys and the Eagles? But Hollywood is in California, and Hollywood reeks of sex and philosophy, doesn't it? I always tell you don't get your theology from Hollywood, from the movies. And please, for the love of Jesus, don't get your morals from them either. Right? In Corinth, there was a temple praising Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the goddess of love. In that temple were employed over 10,000 prostitutes. I told you. It was a center for sex. She was the goddess of love. Also in Corinth lived many followers of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, those great Greek philosophers. And men would sit around and discuss philosophy uh, all day long. They loved to talk about how much they know. Anyone know someone like that? You work with them? Go to school with them. They're in your neighborhood. They're annoying, right? You know everything. We don't like those people very much. Well, that brings me to the first problem in the Corinthian church. They were stuck in worldly wisdom. See, they had their philosophers that they followed. You know, I follow this guy. I follow this guy. And that always causes division, doesn't it? Yeah, of course. The Christians were falling into the same trap. They were picking sides. As if there, was a, if there was different people you could follow in Christianity. There's only one. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1, it says, Paul writes, what, if, what, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? That's ridiculous. And then he goes on to say that Jewish people will demand signs, miracles, and Greek people, Gentiles, will seek wisdom. Because that's what they love. They love the wisdom. And we preach to you the gospel, which is Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews because they don't believe he's the Messiah. And it's foolishness to the Gentiles because they're so wise. But then he says, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It goes on to verse 27 and says, God chose the foolishness in the world to shame those wise people. God chose the weak in the world to shame the strong. Isn't it interesting that Paul was chosen? He was a small man. I don't know what you think of when you think of Paul, but we get a picture of him He's a small man. He he wouldn't, I mean, I'm six foot four. Like, I stand up here, I'm I'm intimidating, aren't I? (laughs) Paul was just a little man. He was just a little guy. He didn't speak with eloquence. He, He admits that. But he spoke with the power of the Holy Spirit in him. And that was impactful everywhere he went. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul explains why some people just will never understand. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him because he is not able to understand them because he is spiritually discerned. If you are spiritually dead, then you don't understand the things of God. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you can't have the mind of Christ. You need the Holy Spirit. This is how this applies to us today as Christians. Don't get stuck or fall for the world's wisdom. There's lots of smart people out there, but when it comes to the things of God, they're actually pretty dumb. But they seem very smart, very knowledgeable. And when they speak really well and with authority, it seems like you should believe what they say. But don't. Be discerning. How do you do that? The Holy Spirit helps you discern. Some it, 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 throughout the world I think they teach. This is pretty common outside of the church that, or maybe even in some churches that there are a lot of ways to get to heaven. You can think your way to heaven. You can talk your way to heaven. You can earn your way to heaven. But what does God's, what does God's word really teach? What does the Bible really say to us? What does Paul say over and over and over again? You don't Earn your way to heaven. It's a gift from God. It's a gift that He gives you. You're saved by grace alone. Grace is a gift. And it's by faith that you put your your trust in Jesus alone. So when you're born again, you know this is true. And I'm speaking to, to those here that if you have the Holy Spirit in you, the Holy Spirit has taught you this. And he's brought comfort to you, that you are saved, that you are going to heaven because you have the Spirit. God puts the Spirit in us as a deposit guaranteeing our salvation. And he doesn't take that away. He gives that to you. It's there. And you can't earn your way into heaven. You need the Holy Spirit because then, 1 Corinthians 2.12, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so we might understand the things freely given us by God. I don't have to convince you. The Holy Spirit should convince you. Amen? Yes. So, please, to overcome the worldly wisdom, listen to the Holy Spirit's wisdom, not the world's wisdom. And how do you listen? You read your Bible, and you come to a Bible teaching church, and you soak it in, and God changes your heart. He he helps you understand. He who has an ear Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The second problem in the church was sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. We read in 1 Corinthians 5.1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And of course we think that's gross and we think, oh, we could never be that bad, but understand, too, here, this was not an outsider. This was a member of the Corinthian church that was doing this, and the church was tolerating this behavior. They had no church discipline whatsoever. And Paul said, you've got to deal with this like right now. You, gotta, you can't keep this up. And he writes in 1 Corinthians uh, about marriage and how sex is supposed to be for marriage. And when I say that, I completely understand we have a lot of young people in the church today, out in the world. Did we lose a little power there? Uh Uh-oh. I'll keep going, but uh, um, when the uh, young people hear a statement like that, and, and older people too, that sex is for marriage only, they might think, oh, that's a little outdated. Come on, God. You know, catch up with the times. Everyone has sex before marriage now. I mean, you've got to try it out, right? I mean, you, you don't know if you're going to be compatible. That's the thinking. That's the, that's the common way about things. And then ladies might wonder, how come I can't get a ring on this finger? Well... There's an old saying, why buy the cow when you get the milk for free? It hurts. Why why get married if you can have all the benefits without the commitment? We may look at the Corinthian church and say, oh, we're not as bad as they are. But isn't any immoral behavior still immoral? I mean, Isn't having sex outside of marriage when the Bible clearly says that you shouldn't do that, isn't that still sexual immorality? Yeah. The reasons why it's wrong, it's harmful, I can't take the time right now to go through them, but if you send me an email, I'll I'll share with you what they are. We can even have a discussion if you'd like. But here's how it applies today. Whatever the sexual immorality is, just know this, it corrupts individuals. It corrupts us individually, and it destroys relationships. You you will not have a God-honoring sex life if you're married and looking lustfully at other women or men. You're married and you have sex, or you're not married, excuse me, and you're having sex. If you're looking at pornography, if you're caught up in masturbation, those things do not honor God. And they will not bring you a blessing. And if you're thinking to yourself, I can't believe he's talking about that right now in church. But why not? God talks about it in the Bible. A lot. Sexual immorality was a problem then, it's a problem now. And if you're in it, if you're caught up in it, which statistics say half the room or more is having, uh, committing sexual immorality, well, what do you do? Whether it's occasionally or all the time, you need help, don't you? You're tired of losing the battle, aren't you? Well, get a battle plan. Get a battle plan. The victory's in Christ, not in you, because you've tried your best before, haven't you? And you keep failing, don't you? Yeah. So have a battle plan, and a battle plan always starts with our thinking. It always starts here because action doesn't take place unless we think about it first. And so we need a battle plan for our stinking thinking. And by the way, 2 Corinthians, we'll see, it says, take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Take every captive, uh, every, captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. In the well-known book, uh, Every Man's Battle, one of the strategies... Am I still coming out the mics, by the way? Yeah, oh, okay. Just wondering. Uh, one of the strategies in every man's battle is, for the victory over lust is to memorize two verses that come out of 1 Corinthians. It says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. When I read that book and I read those two verses, that was a great start to the battle plan. Every man's battle is lust. And to have this as part of the battle plan, that when temptations come, you know this verse, it's in your mind. I was bought with a price. I must glorify God with my body. Job made a covenant with his eyes not to look lustfully at a do we have that same covenant? Do we have that, that battle plan? Because I want you to have victory. I want us all to have victory over sexual morality. And we can win because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Can't we? We can. We can win this battle. We can do it right. The saying goes, failing the plan is planning to fail. You need a battle plan against sexual immorality. The Corinthian church was messing up big time. But God gave them a battle plan through Paul. The third problem this church was having was in the use of spiritual gifts. You've probably read this before in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14. The purpose of the gifts of the Spirit are to build up the whole church. And they were all using uh, their gifts for themselves. Not the way it's supposed to be done. So we have a spiritual gift, you have one, you're supposed to use it to build up the church. They were using it to sort of um, show off, if you will. Uh, Think of a fifth grade band concert. You ever been to one of those? Every kid's playing their instrument, right, and there's no harmony whatsoever. Your ears are like, That's what it was like at the Corinthian church. God wants us to sound like the Detroit Symphony Orchestra. Beautiful sound blending together in harmony. So how do we apply this today? A couple of weeks ago, I taught on spiritual gifts. Uh, the message is on uh, our website, on YouTube, on Facebook. Uh, Step 4 class, which will be offered in the future. I hope you sign up for it. We can talk about spiritual gifts and how to build up the church. Because finding your place in ministry is like finding that perfect job. I mean, many of us, we have a job that we like we're good at, uh, we excel in it. If you have that, praise God, <laughs> be excited about that. Um, that's like finding the perfect spot in ministry. Like, I'm good at it, I love it, I enjoy it, it doesn't feel like work, that's the goal. You know, if you don't have that in ministry, keep trying. Keep praying, what has God given you? Because he's given you a gift, and he's given you a, a skill, a passion, and you've got to develop that just like anything, just like a job, you've got to develop it. And we don't do it for in ministry. For us, we do it for him. We do it for his glory. And it's a sweet thing. Uh, as they say, when you find your right seat on the bus, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. The church moving together, building up, and reaching out. So use your gift to build up the church. The fourth problem in Corinth was how they took communion. They had agape feasts regularly. We have one once a year here, which is like a big potluck. It's coming in November, the Sunday before Thanksgiving. Mark your calendar, you don't want to miss it. Uh, It's a great time of fellowship. But when they took, uh, they had their agape feast. they took a meal together, and then they worshipped together, and they had communion together. But when they gathered together, Paul writes this, they were being selfish. One was eating ahead of the other, probably in line, taking all the good food. You know, Another was getting drunk over here. And, and then when it came to, not, to take communion, their hearts were not in the right place. They, they were not, as Paul says, confessing their sins because God is faithful and just and will forgive us. They were not doing that. They were not repenting and being restored. And so it was just an, an, an ugly thing that, that wasn't even like what Christ had with his disciples in the upper room. So prepare your heart for communion is something that we can apply today. When we have communion the first Sunday of the month, prepare your heart for that. Don't take it lightly. We take it together to remember what Christ has done for us, but but prepare your heart for that. Uh, Fifth problem, last one we're going to talk about, is in regard to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Apparently, there were some Christians in Corinth that didn't believe in the resurrection which Paul says is unbelievable how you can be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection. It's the core of the gospel. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 through 19, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is futile. You're you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have, have really perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. I mean, how's that? If you don't believe in the resurrection, then, then people should pity you as a Christian. I mean, Mr. T comes to mind, right? I was growing up. Pity the fool who doesn't believe in the resurrection. Paul, Paul says this, this is the core, right? This is Jesus didn't die for you. He didn't just die for you. He lives for you. And someday, you will also be resurrected to a new body, which, by the way, we'll learn about in 2 Corinthians. How does it apply for us today? To me, it's the greatest hope in the world. Lots of people have hope in things like money, in in status, in, in all kinds of things. But I can think of nothing in the world that gives me more hope than someday getting a new body and living in heaven with Jesus. Come on, right? I mean, this is awesome. This is the top of Hope Mountain. This is the the peak, the pinnacle, the crown. Because we know in this life, we suffer. We live in a fallen, sinful world, and for all sorts of reasons, we suffer. Whether it's physically or mentally or emotionally, we suffer. This is our reality, but it is not our future. You are in Christ. It is not our future. I love what Jesus says in John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Don't you love those words, Jesus? I mean, just underline that in your Bible. Highlight that. Put that somewhere where you can see that over and over Because when you start feeling down, when you start feeling like, man, this this sucks. This is terrible. I am just having a terrible day. Take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. I can see a victory in Christ. I love those words. What What does Jesus say to the seven churches? He who overcomes will reign with me in heaven. He who conquers will enjoy eternity with me in heaven. Many of you know one of our members, Susan. She started coming here about a year ago, and she suddenly passed away this week. And we were shocked. Many of us, you might be hearing this for the first time, and you might be shocked to hear that. Maybe you can't place her, or maybe you can, but it it was just like, why, how? Like We don't know those answers, but as I thought about the year that I've known her, about her understanding of God's word and her faith in Jesus, I just felt a peace, to be honest. That she was, in, 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 she was just experiencing a blessing that I have not experienced. And I know that we get sad when someone we know passes away, but she is, she's smiling. And she's not in her glory. She's in his glory. And she is just full of joy. And it's hard for us, but it's, it's wonderful for her. I encourage you to overcome the obstacles, the obstacles of our faith. What are those obstacles? Well, it's the wisdom of the world that's going to try to sell you on a different Christianity. It's the sexiness of this world that's going to try to entice you to cheat on God and each other. It's the selfishness of this world that will convince you to only look out for yourself. And put your hope in what you can control. And God's word says, that's a lie. Put your hope in Jesus. Put your hope in the resurrected Jesus. I finish with these words in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we, that's us, the church, are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all those that have gone before us, as Christians, all the angels in heaven singing all the time to God, as we see a picture of that in Revelation 4. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And how do we run that race? Look to Jesus. He's the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured that cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us put our hope in the resurrected Christ. Amen. Father, I thank you for your words today. May it bless us. May we see this church in Corinth as a church that had problems, but a church that can overcome. We can overcome anything in Christ, in you. But we need your help, God. And we call on that today. We ask you for help. We ask that you would help us. If there's something... That I said today, Lord, that, that spoke volumes to someone. Maybe it's an issue that they're having right now, Lord, that a problem that they are having a trouble overcoming. Father, may they find a new hope. May they find victory in you. May you help them, Lord. May your spirit comfort them and teach them. May they get a battle plan. May they put their trust in you 100%. Father God, I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.